Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. Today, we're talking about those recent guidelines that were put out about music in the Mass. So we're going to go through what, what did that document say, what does it mean, and why did it come out in the first place. So without further ado, episode 13 of season 5 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Well, hello, gentlemen. Jesse, we were on a break. We we were on a break. Whoa, but now we're what back. Was, what was that? Did oh. you break something? No, my microphone fell over. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to be old enough to remember. We were on a break. You know where that's from, Chris? <laughs> Do you know where that's from, Chris? I don't think so. Maybe I don't uh, know. Is it from Friends? It is from Friends. No. Okay. I was never a Friends person. When Ross and Rachel were on a break, and you know. I was, I was never a friendly person. Set the course for the next, next five seasons. I was never really into that show either. It, I could, I just didn't understand how they all lived in those huge apartments in New York and, oh, yeah. and lived those lifestyles. Completely unbelievable. Completely mm-hmm. unbelievable. It's like living on a farm in Wisconsin. Anyway, what do you got, Jesse? <laughs> well, a couple of things. So, first of all, it's good to hear your voices. Uh, it's been a, it's been a while since we've sat and recorded. Thank you. Um, but also, we got some big stuff coming up with both of you. Really? So, yes. yeah. Well, Dennis, we'll start with you. So, we I don't just know what la- you're going to say. So, surprise me. Well, it's a few few things. We we just launched uh, before Christmas. We launched a new course uh, with you, uh, the theology of liturgical music, which is oh, yeah. available online. So you can get check that out. Um, and then uh, in a few months, we'll be launching another course with you on liturgical adaptation. Oh my so gosh! Do I ever cool. stop talking? No, and it's fantastic. No, it's comment. absolutely fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, then Chris. We're filming three different projects with you next weekend, mm. so we got a lot of stuff coming down the pipeline. Doesn't uh, he ever stop talking? <laughs> he does not stop talking, and it's glorious. And uh, a little sneak peek for all of you listeners out there. Next month, uh, we will be uh, releasing a, a course on the Triduum. It will be called Treasures of the Triduum, and Chris will walk through the entire uh, Triduum, three days with the rites and talk about all this really great stuff. And so if you're preparing for any of this at your parish, uh, regardless of COVID restrictions, it'd be a really great opportunity for you to sit down and take an online class with Chris about that whole thing. So we're really excited about that. Yeah. And in case and, there's any new neophytes out there, the Triduum is what, Chris? The Triduum? Uh, the Triduum. Three times doom. Uh, three uh, three days, three days holy from Mass of the Lord's Supper to uh, to Easter Sunday, and it's spelled Easter. in this crazy Latin way: T R I D U U M. But that's fine. I'll learn what that means and why it's spelled that way by our recording next week. Jessica. I that makes me a little nervous, <laughs> uh, but that's okay. And to put a cherry on top of all of this, uh, you may have seen some of this from our you know social media or anything like that. But we now have a monthly subscription option for all of our courses. So if you want 
unlimited access to all of our courses, plus a brand new course every month. You can subscribe now uh, for $37.99. You get all access to everything and a new class every month. So, what right, a deal. No, wow. We got that. We got all that out of the way, but I'm super excited to work on uh, these upcoming projects. And Chris, uh, the, the other two projects that we have going on, they're, they're going to be collaborate, collaborations between Autoramus and Liturgical Institute. So, more, more on those later when we have a more formalized uh, promotional plan. But Great. very excited for some other upcoming stuff with Chris. So, Lots uh, of good stuff going on. Yeah, very, very awesome stuff coming down the pipeline. So, But today, speaking of awesome stuff, we get some clear direction. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know my weakness. That I is know. It, it, it is your prepubescent trumpet noise. <laughs> It's not uh, easy to do that, man, when you're not well, pre- when you're not pubescent. <laughs> we're post-pubescent. <laughs> uh, no, we're excited that uh, we get some direction on liturgical music. Yeah, it's from a doctrine, the Committee on Doctrine of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and you probably have some favorite hymns, least favorite hymns. Of course, we're. This document doesn't even address the question of hymns, you know, why we're singing hymns at Mass anyway, which is a legal permitted option, I'll admit. However, hey, it's the one that's... Say more, say more, oh, I'm sorry, I cut you off. Yeah, say, say more. more I'll, I'll say, say more, more about that part. Yeah. Well, there are four options for singing in the places where most Catholics sing hymns. And traditionally, the first option was singing the Latin Gregorian chant from the Graduale Romanum. The second option was singing the Latin simplified chant, post-Vatican II, specified by Sacrosanum and Concilium, called the Graduale Simplex. And the third option was uh, some other setting of these proper texts. Proper texts are actually in the Missal. They're words given by the church for that Mass that day. And then a fourth option was some other liturgical chant, as it's now translated, or liturgical song that's related to the feast or the season. So the church always has in mind the ideal, which is she gives us the words for the entrance chant, sometimes called the entrance antiphon, and the communion chant, communion antiphon. And uh, traditionally, there was also an offertory antiphon or chant. And every adaptation made from that was supposed to at least be related to that or grow from that. We've never been in the model of pick your favorite hymn this day that, because everybody knows it and sing whatever you want. So if your pastor, well, let's not beat up pastors. If your music director is doing that, you might have a, a gentle <laughs> hey, <a> music director. <laughs> you might have a gentle uh, conversation. I, I invite you to the fuller, deeper riches as Vatican II envisions it for. Hey, maybe Active just as an, as an aside there, I mean, there, in many places, I don't know what it's like where you all are, but there's no singing or very limited singing during uh, blessed COVID mercy. Times. So, but when music does come back, uh, I think there'd be a great time to uh, introduce or reintroduce uh, some of these antiphons. But anyway, like you yeah. said, Dennis, this is about, not about antiphons so much. <laughs> if we were singing antiphons, this document would not be necessary, would it? Right, because the texts are already given in the Missal by the Universal Church. So, there you go. And they're most likely in union with church doctrine. Well, you would hope so. (laughs) You would hope so. Now, the thing about hymns and kind of their nature and their history is, in many ways, they are associated with devotional practices. They express the particular emotions of the artist or the musician at the moment. And, you know, we've done lots of talks on this, season one, two, Gordini, devotional versus liturgical, all of that stuff. However, uh, and also, you know, one of the benefits of the ecumenical movement is we understand each other and, you know, Catholics and Protestants can talk. On the other hand, sometimes we take hymns either written by Protestants or written by Catholics 
and we just use them uncritically. So for a long time, I mean, as long as I've been in this liturgy field, which is coming up on a quarter century now, people have been saying, oh, hymns, we got to get a handle on hymns. We got to get it. We need a list that the bishops approve. And it's never really happened because nobody wants to limit the freedom of, of the artist. But I don't know how long it's been in process, but in September of 2020, just a few months ago, there was finally something called a document from the Committee on Doctrine of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops called Catholic Hymnody at the Service of the Church, an Aid for Evaluating Hymn Lyrics. So this is not a prohibited list. This is not the list of banned songs, although the implications are maybe some of these you shouldn't do anymore. But as far as I can tell, maybe you can confirm this, Chris. This is not a legal document forbidding anything. It's a it's an aid for evaluating hymn lyrics, and I think they're hoping that people will put two and two together and not do bad yeah. hymns anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right, Dennis. It's a resource. Um, it's not legislative. Uh, still, I mean, it, it's pretty good, pretty sound advice, if we can put it that way. Uh, if, uh, if one of these hymns is uh, not doctrinally uh, legit or sound, I mean, whether that's legislated or not, I mean, we shouldn't be singing it or hearing it. But, you know, to that point, I mean, there, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, there's a lot of ways to examine or critique or evaluate a hymn. Uh, and this one isn't speaking about, say, musicality or history or singability. Or the or, imitation of My Little Pony theme song. Is right, some none of that. Known, it has right? nothing to do with that. This is specifically about the doctrinal content of the lyrics, Right. So it's not really speaking about the, the musical dimension at all. This is just the, the lyrical component and how consistent or inconsistent some of these uh, texts are with the uh, Catholic doctrine. Right. Hence, the Committee on Doctrine put it together. So, yeah, I, I've, I've often wondered, too. I mean, why is this coming from them? Well, I guess you've just explained. It. Why is it coming from them and not, you know, the Bishop's Committee on Divine Worship, which is what you might think it would come from? Or maybe related to that, you wonder to what degree, if any, uh, the Committee on Divine Worship uh, had with uh, with this uh, text. I don't know the I, answer. Yeah, I that. think it's a little hard to say this melody is trite, insipid, and you know boring and argue that. Well, you can pretty much argue the theology of the text, right? It either says what it says or it doesn't. So in a certain sense, there's a kind of cut and dry quality to this that's a little harder, you know, with the artistic side. But, you know, I was uh, coming back from somewhere and I was just about to get on a plane and I got this call from the Drew Mariani show email saying, could you please come talk to us about the new document on hymns? The document that, you know, says all are welcome is no longer welcome. <laughs> I, really, I didn't even know what I was talking about. It, it was that day. And uh, so I downloaded it before the plane left and then got to talk for a few minutes while I was in the car at the airport as soon as I got back. And I read it. It's actually, it's not a reactionary document. It's not a, we don't like this, so don't do it anymore. It's, um, pretty smart critique and also, you know, makes uh, some good theological points too about what a hymn is and why words matter. You're all about why words matter, Chris. Why do words matter? You're my favorite <laughs> author about the nature of words. Uh, well, I, I think the the main reason that word that the words of the mass, or in this case, the words of hymn, hymns matters because our Redeemer happens to be a word mm -hmm. and that all the words in the liturgy are sort of audible sacraments of the eternal word of the Trinity. And if the words we sing don't sound like the word of the Trinity or the word incarnate, there's a big problem. So those, uh, those sacramental words are, are misleading, they're dim, they're skewed, they're dulled, they're whatever they are. So the words of the Mass 
hymns or whatever happens to be need to be fully loaded with the eternal word of the Trinity. So there really is a, an immense of uh, an immense um, uh, truth and reality at stake in this. Uh, yeah, in this question. there's your high theology because you, you had me at fully loaded, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> but, but think about a word, you know, we hear the word of the Father, and we think words are just like sounds that come out of our mouths, and so what? Translate word in your mind to real self-communication and or self-revelation or self-gift. So, you know, if you get in the habit of telling your children, you're ugly, you're stupid, I hate you, you know, you'll never amount to anything, you'd be like, hey, do you really mean that? Because that's not that funny. <laughs> if it's a joke, it's not funny, and if it's true, then it's really not good, right? So if you're communicating hatred to somebody through words, that's a real thing. And so God communicates himself or makes himself knowable to us through the word who's the son. And then we echo that out to the world. So it's really important what you say and how you closely you are to this revelation of God's self through his word, which is known in lots of ways, right? Scripture, uh, of course, the son, and then various ways that we amplify that. So there you go. Self-communication, and uh, the content of that has to be right. So this has a little preface. You know, the document's very short. It's, uh, you know, just a few pages. Um, but it re repeats a couple of things here, that the beauty of Catholic hymnody is constitutively related to the truth of the mystery of faith it proposes. Constitutive is a, is a great word. It means it's in the nature of, it's con intimately connected to. And so Catholic hymnody isn't just this thing you sing at the beginning, the end, kind of like, you know, frosting on a cake. But it's, say it's the flour in the cake or the sugar in the cake. It constitutes the nature of what's, uh, what's being done. And so um, you got to be careful. You know, if you don't put flour in the cake and you put, what, Jesse, arsenic in the cake, there's going to be some problems. I, I think arsenic and old lace, I think you yeah, put in the neither cake. neither of which are good for cake. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're making this point that, hey, hymns, words in general are, uh, are really important and that... The truth of the faith is, you know, the second sentence here, must not be subordinated to the canons of compositional style or the needs of musical or poetic form. So words come first, music follows. This is the nature of chant. You don't move words around just to make yourself um, a nice little melody. And that would happen sometimes. You know, people would paraphrase some words to make it fit into some metrical hymn. Dennis, uh, I'm not enough of a musician to be totally sure on this, but I've, I've been told that... Um before the Council of Trent, maybe the one of the more famous composers was Josquin Dupré. Dupré, yeah. And uh, maybe you've sung you've sung in a lot of great professional choirs over the years. Maybe you've sung some uh, Josquin Dupré over the years. By the way, that's a really good aptronym. His last name is Dupré. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, but. The, the the problem with his music was that it was so mu the music was so excellent the musical dimension was so excellent you have like six equal voices stacked on top of each other and it was just genius musically but the casualty was the word the text the music yep. yeah and so they say the fathers of the council of trent were, were about ready to ban all polyphony from the liturgy because the word was being just muddled and you couldn't hear it until, uh, till what's his name, Palestrina showed up and said, no, 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 this is how you can do it in such a way where the music does truly, in fact, amplify and make the word more uh, hearable and prayable. And right. And I'm not a music historian, but one of, I remember singing, Josquin Dupré, Misa Lomarme, 
l'homme armé in French means the army man, you know, the soldier. So it's the mass of the army man. Well, wh- why is that? And they were very, very fond of taking melodic texts from folk, song, folk tunes and even some words sometimes and inserting them in, in the middle of the Kyrie. And so, you know, just like we sometimes take melodies we like and try to squeeze liturgical words into them, uh, a similar, similar problem. And it wasn't just, just getting to pray. It was very common. Lots of composers were sitting the Misa Lomarme, Misa, the Mass of the Soldier. And people argue where they come from. But the point is, the texts of the Mass were sort of taking second place to these melodic tunes from the secular world. And they weren't even talking about hymns they were talking about setting the Kyrie or the Gloria or whatever so sometimes you hear that with the O Come O Come Emmanuel people will sing the Agnus Day to the melody of uh, O Come O Come Emmanuel in, in uh, Lent your, and, your army mass makes me think of like people marching and like oh no but I can say my friend Dennis likes to pray <laughs> And, you know, you, would, you could imagine that would be sort of catchy and popular and because everybody knows that and they would go, oh, that's funny, ha, 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 right? But you see how it di- you know, diminishes the nature of the text. So anyway, you know, this is, there's not a lot of theology in this document really except that it reintroduces these notions of where hymnody comes from, what it's about, what the word of God is, and um, talking about how, you know, the text of the Missal and the text of Scripture themselves are the normative texts for Hymns, okay? So now there's interesting. We talked about propers briefly before, but propers, for the most part, although some are adapted for the saints or the feast, are scriptural lines. And, um, you know, for the Feast of Apostles, you will make them princes over all the earth. They will remember your name through all generations. Uh, that's a scriptural line, right? Saying the apostles will be now these um, successors of, um, well, the successors of the apostles, the bishops would, you know, be these people keeping Christ's mission alive. So liturgical sources, scriptural sources, and then so the guidelines are, you know, something they come up with and they give two general guidelines, which are, you know, this is not rocket science, as they say, right? Is the hymn in conformity with Catholic doctrine? (laughs) Are you hitting yourself on the forehead going, duh, right now? Okay. Yes, sometimes they're not, right? And these are the things, you know, when you think about hymns, and I'm a thinker at Mass, drive me crazy, right? There's some hymn that starts here in this place, dirt for a floor, and they're talking about the church being this kind of dirt-floored hut. I can never remember what church that is. I mean, what song that is. It drives me crazy. We don't have dirt for a floor in a church. Um, and then the second one, first, is it in conformity with Catholic doctrine? Is the hymn expressed an image and vocabulary appropriately reflective of the uses of Scripture? and public liturgical prayer of the church. Okay, so those are the two things. Is it conformity with Catholic doctrine? And then does it use image and vocabulary that are, you know, reflective properly of that nature of worship? So let us break bread together on our knees. Well, no, that's not really reflective of the nature of Catholic worship. We're not just breaking bread. It's not just a party where we happen to be, you know, kneeling. So um, this is what we're, this is what they're uh, talking about. And of course, they refer to the catechism as the important place to find all this if you want to test something against uh, Catholic doctrine. And um, do you know, Chris, where they got these guidelines, theological guidelines from? Well, I do now. Uh, it says that uh, in 97, uh, Archbishop uh, Buchline. Yeah, he was a Benedictine and Bishop of Memphis, Tennessee. Oh, was he? Okay. Uh, he had done something similar for local or regional catechisms, I think, to see how it is that uh, other catechetical texts I don't remember if they had to actually be in a catechism or not, but how they measured up doctrinally to, say, the catechism of the Catholic Church. And so he came up with this list of uh, areas where, you know, this could be problematic. And it seems the document takes his list and uses it to apply 
or uh, to evaluate, really, that's what this thing is about, to evaluate him texts in light of doc, true doctrinal, track, doctrinal texts. Right, which makes sense, right? It's already there. Why reinvent the wheel? So the authors of the document, whoever they are, said they read approximately 1,000 hymns composed between 1980 and 2015. And uh, then it puts some of them with actual examples. Now, this is... What's the word you would say? Brave? Um, nervy? There are other words I could think of that are not family friendly. But how do you just actually say this hymn has this problem? I mean, I think for a long time. I nobody can say wanted... that about a lot of hymns. But, <laughs> but you know, I think that's what's so good about this document is um, I found Dennis like reading papers over the, the years or editing bulletins, things like that. When, when you just say some or there are Often. certain. And yeah. then you want to say, well, which ones? Which right. ones? Show me which ones. Tell me which ones. And this this document actually gives specific examples that they're trying to mm-hmm. use as illustrations. That's what's. And if good. you if you look for the document to try to get the actual thing, every headline in the news is "All are welcome" is no longer welcome at mass. Right? This was the joke, right? That "All are welcome." The specifically named "welcome" is kind of booted. You know, no longer welcome. So. You know, to the degree that anybody follows any of this stuff, and, you know, the news has been so crazy lately that it's kind of got bumped to the, the back, 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 back burner. But here we are, bringing it forward again. So let's look at the first one there, deficiencies in the presentation of Eucharistic doctrine. Now, whether you know what that means specifically or not, you can start to say, okay, well, is Eucharist all about the community? Is Eucharist, you know, we are Eucharist, or is Eucharist something more than that? Is it just a meal? Is it just bread and wine? Because you do hear a lot of hymns these days will actually say, we share bread and wine, or we break bread together on our knees. And um, and there's certain, you know, biblical images like the bread of angels. So, you know, just because it's the body of Christ doesn't mean it's not bread anymore in the in the theological sense, as a as a meal that nourishes us, and now the, the, I'm being kind of theologically <laughs> precise there, right? Because it's not bread in the earthly sense. However, it's bread in the completion of the biblical sense, as Christ's body is bread for us, and so on. So it's not that the word becomes forbidden, or that the poetical um, nuances are no longer allowed. But what you can't do, according to this first thing here, is to imply that after the consecration or communion hymn, for instance, that we're just walking up the aisle to receive bread and wine. Or you can't say things like, you know, we receive Christ in the bread, right? There's an old theological thing called impanation that Christ is in the bread, but it's still bread. This is big in the Reformation era around Luther and others. And also, um, they give these examples, right? They actually look up a word, they use a word called a synecdoche, I don't know if you uh, know the good Greek word. Um, and it's a figure of speech where the part represents the whole. So the example they use is um, cup. When we eat this bread and drink this cup. So biblically, yes, cup was the word, but it never said wine. And they make that very uh, clear. You drink from the cup, right? The chalice because of all of its meaning. And the cup is just one part of the whole notion of the precious blood. They're like, that's okay. However, it can't be uh, false. So then they give some examples, you know, now in this banquet, I mean, fortunately, and I think you said this too, Chris, we don't hear a lot of these hymns often, at least the places we we go to mass. Um, Now in this banquet, what does it say? Here's the, the lyric, Christ is our bread. Here all... Here shall all who hunger be fed bread that is broken, wine that is poured, love is the sign of our Lord. Man, you can be burned at the stake, right? And centuries ago from making these kind of claims as, as a heretic. And here we are just singing them happily uh, along. And so they make the point 
wine. It's not a good idea to use wine as a synecdoche or this part that represents the whole after the consecration because it can mislead people. Now, here's where all our welcome is mentioned, too, in this one, too. Uh, let us build a house where love is found in water, wine, and wheat, a banquet hall on holy ground where peace and justice meet. Same problem. You know, the Eucharist is not bread and uh, wine anymore. And the point they make is there's nothing else in the hymn that mitigates the impression. So if you were to say, we start as bread and wine, and now it becomes Christ's body and blood for us. Okay, there you go. That's fine, because it's saying it starts as one thing, becomes something else. Um, but it doesn't do that. And so... Does it, it matter can, if that's sung at the offertory when it is still bread and wine, and it just can't be sung as the communion hymn? Well, I guess that's a little more theologically precise. However, it could be misinterpreted for the idea that what you're about to receive later is bread and wine. And I'm, I'm not it, arguing for those being yeah, sung. I'm just, I'm just thinking about, you know. Why do you hate the Eucharist, Jesse? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and then there's some other stuff in All Are Welcome. Let us build a house. And so people say, well, where does the church come from? You know, the Christians don't make the church. They're members of the church, but the church is the mystical body of Christ who assembles us. And so we don't make the church, even though we're components, so to speak, of the church. Another one they, that I mentioned already that they mentioned by name is, let us break bread together on our knees. And the line is, let us drink wine together on our knees. Okay, so it's not bread, right? And it's not wine. At, at that point, when you're drinking it, it's obviously post-transubstantiation. So, Right, right. So if you have... A theology, which is, well, there's really no transubstantiation, there's no Eucharist in the sense of the Catholic Church, and that what you're doing with bread and wine is just a mere memory of what Christ did at the Last Supper, which is, you know, kind of standard mainline Protestant thinking in sort of evangelical circles, then that theology is in that hymn. However, it doesn't work very well for Catholics. And they give a whole bunch of songs that are good. So it's not all just, you know, lists of prohibited songs. You satisfy the hungry heart with gift of finest wheat. Now, there's wheat, right? But gift of finest wheat is enough that um, you start to say, okay, it's more than just the normal kind of thing. Uh, eat this bread, drink this cup. You know, that is biblical enough, even though it's bread, that it's not um, going to be confused. So they give all, some of the traditional ones to all solitaris, hostia at this lamb's high feast. I was happy um, to see those as recommended, by the way, in that list, because it, I, I mean, I think that's at least moving in the right direction in a mm -hmm. proper sense. Yeah. And, you know, all these things. Well, why don't people believe in the Eucharist? Well, they've been singing the wrong theology and getting it burned into their brain since they were a child. <laughs> so time to do something about that. Yeah. You know what that reminds me of is, uh, I don't know, maybe this is six months ago now. Everything's been a blur. But uh, there was this uh, one of these Pew surveys about the uh, percentage of Catholics who believe in the real presence. And uh, many people, rightly, I remember Bishop Baring saying this too, you know, this is such a uh, sign of uh, poor catechesis. But then others said, well, it's not just that. It's when they go to actually celebrate the Eucharist, they're fed on this type of a diet. So the catechetical component aside, if when you actually go to celebrate the Eucharist, this mm -hmm. is what you're being fed and taught. It's no wonder that it's starting to uh, erode, you know, that element of the faith. Right. Yeah. So that one's pretty straightforward. Does it make the Eucharist the Eucharist or just mere bread and wine? Number two, Chris, this is where you get to be a genius. Oh, yeah. Give me. <laughs> give me yeah. You took the easy one, the Eucharist. Yeah, you got the presentation <laughs> right. of the Trinitarian yeah. doctrine, the great no. mystery. 
and I guess you know, there, listen, there, there, there's ten. There's a list of ten of these uh, deficiencies. We just wanted to give a couple of examples. The first one was with the Eucharist. Here's one that comes from uh, what they call deficiencies in the presentation of Trinitarian doctrine, and almost each of these stem from a reluctance to use the the, the revealed names of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so here's um, especially Father. So here's one. The hymn uh, they mention is called "Led by the Spirit." I don't know what him that is. Uh, in the verse four, it says, led by the spirit, now sing praise to God, the Trinity, the source of life, the living word made flesh to set us free, the spirit blowing where it will, where it will to make us friends of God. And so the thing is, they say, the document says that who is the source of life? Is it father, son, or Holy Spirit? Yeah, just like who yeah. is creator. Exactly. Yeah. Right. It's not, it, it makes it imply that, you know, the, the father is, say, the source of life or the creator, which he is, but so is the son and the spirit. And so uh, it, it, I mean, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, the mystery of the Trinity, the truth of the Trinity is, is difficult enough to, to grasp and appreciate and let it be life changing. Now, you know, skew it a little bit, make it even more unclear. And, you know, the place of the Trinity, which is the first place, really. Uh, in our faith is even that much more uh, difficult to, uh, to to encounter. Right. And the way they put it here precisely is that avoid doxologies. These are like glory to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit that Im, uh, imply relations alone rather than um, the whole notion of the Trinity. So f the creator, redeemer, sanctifier, there's, they're true, but it's not the creator creates, the redeemer redeems, and the sanctifier sanctifies because they're all God, right? So if you limit them to just one of those things, then that's... Uh, a bit of a problem. Also, there. I mean, people who are that comes up when people are trying to resist the image "father" for God, right? Mm -hmm. So this sort of use of male, masculine um, pronouns. Yeah. But anyway, but that that one's subtle, though. I don't know that I would pick that up right away as a problem. Yeah, yeah. It is subtle, but uh, all the more uh, still very uh, impactful. I mean, if it's so obvious, you can say, "Hey, that's not right." But the, the, the more subtle the thing is, maybe it uh, creeps in that way more right. easily. And if it mentions, it goes, oh, go ahead, Jesse. If you've spent any time listening to Dennis McNamara and a course about music or this podcast or just in general, uh, one of his uh, proclaimed qualifications for liturgical music is that it has to be to God and about God. I kind of wish that was one of their 10 <laughs> qualifications. <laughs> to God, from God, and about God. Yeah, yeah. I got that from uh, Mark Daniel Kirby, although he got it from somewhere else. Well, here's the problem. You know, they mentioned the Arians in this one. Uh, what are the Arians? What's the big Arian heresy about, Chris? Do you remember? I know you do because you teach it. <laughs> it was about uh, uh, Jesus not being God. He was the firstborn of all creation. He was uh, made by God. And so, yeah. So if you talk about the Father as creator and then the Son as only redeemer, then you can start to say, all right, well, God was God. And then he created this second person called Jesus and send him on a mission. Well, that's not enough, right? Because he was there from the beginning. And so, you know, this is subtle, subtle stuff, but that's, um, that's what we do here. Well, you know, maybe just one more thing before we wrap this up. Uh, there's another related story to this, you know, about how the, the concluding doxologies to the prayers in the Roman Missal are now being retranslated. I do not. We Tell say, me. Uh, we ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. That one doesn't appear in the Latin and mm. it's, but it's been, it's found its way into the English, not into the other languages. And the congregation in Rome is now asking that that be excised from the prayers because it's related to this uh, Arianism, I guess. 
and that got through the last mi- round of yeah, missile yeah. translation. Man, yeah. I just memorized that two <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I know. And I use that. I use that at the end of my extemporaneous prayers to make me yeah. sound like I know what I'm doing. Now, and now I got to redo all of that. Yeah. No, this is tricky uh, too. But you know, one of the things they say is it makes it seem like Jesus is one God. You know, the one is referring back to Jesus and not to the Trinity. The Trinity is one God. Jesus mm. isn't one God. And so, but again, so the, the, you know, getting the language right. Uh, whether it's in hymns, whether it's in uh, mass texts, is important because they they reveal uh, and hopefully not conceal the truth with the truths of our faith. So, anyway. okay, let's let's do uh, one more one more category maybe, and that is number four in the list: hymns with a view of the church that sees her as essentially a human construction. So we hinted at this uh, before. And, you know, they give specific references to paragraphs in the catechism that talks about Christ is the, you know, the church is Christ. And, you know, I love to talk about the mystical body as the continuing action of Christ in the world, the sacrament of Christ. It's not just a meeting of people who talk about um, Jesus stuff. So what it says here is him should avoid giving the impression that it's primarily our work that makes the church or the kingdom of God. And this is actually pretty common. And it's, and again, it's another sort of Protestant Catholic distinction is, um, you know, one of them being seeing a new church into being, people make lots of jokes about that one, you know, seeing a new church into being, you know what the joke line is? Cause the one we've got is bad, right? So that's, that's the joke. But the real line is one in faith and love and praise. Well, can you sing a new church into being? <laughs> well, not really, because the church is Christ. You can't sing a new Christ into being. Um, can you sing a new song unto the Lord? You can, because Christ is the new song, right? He's the new breath of the Holy Spirit plus the word of the Father, which is now a song that sings back. So you're singing him, yes, but you can't sing a new church into being. The other one um, they mention is, as a fire is meant for burning. Now, this is not a hymn that I hear very often, but I have heard it. Um, But the line is incredible. Like, how this could ever pass a Catholic publisher. As a fire is meant for burning, so the church is meant for mission, giving glory to God's name, not to preach our creeds or customs, but to build a bridge of care. I mean, come on. What is an apostle after all, right? The one who is sent with the message. So we're supposed to be care bearers? Well, in, in the proper way, yeah, exactly. Not to preach our creeds or customs, uh, finding neighbors everywhere. Of course, this is the Christian mission to preach the creed. It's the revelation of the word of the Father through his son to the world to hand on from one generation to the next. So they they very you know calmly say, this seems a seriously deficient account of the evangelizing mission of the church. <laughs> so, boy, now that that is one. I mean, you teach your kids, oh, don't preach your creed or custom to anyone, then forget it. Just go sit in the corner and wait to die, right? The whole point of being an evangelizing church is to spread your creed and custom, or your tradition, at least. So, so there, I, are other, there are other ones, too, but I, yeah. This whole conversation started with us talking about, you know, the order of things to be sung in the Mass and what we should be using and all this stuff. And I just feel like we've spent a lot of time talking about um, you know, the metaphor I want to use is I'm, I'm going to tell my kids, hey, we're going to go to Disney World. And they're like, yeah, yeah, awesome. And then, you know, you can read blogs and articles about the best way to experience Disney World, right? So go here first, do this, make sure you do that. But instead, what I did with my wife was like, 
what's the best way to drive around the parks to see it from afar? And I feel like we're just <laughs> sitting around talking about what's the best way to experience the parking lot of Disney World when it's like, let's just go in. Let's have that full experience rather than just like talking about it or driving by. And so there's an awful lot of, I mean, and this is all good. It's going in the right direction, but I think it pales in comparison to what's prescribed, right? Well, sure. The corrective is always necessary when there's something wrong going on, but correcting the mistake is not the same thing as living in the fullness. Imagine if you walked into Disney World and the song in, you know, It's a Small World or something was not It's a Small World, but it's like, there is no world and we're here alone. You know, we're, we're at Bush Park, Bush Gardens and not at Disney World. And you're like, Wait, we are at Disney World. Why are we seeing the opposite of our belief and our experience? And so the minimum would be like, you're at Disney, welcome. And then the maximum would be, go see Mickey, go see Cinderella, go delight and all of these things. And so correctives are limited by nature, but they're necessary sometimes. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're not welcome well, at Disney World, Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people aren't, I don't think. I think you would get banned from Disney World. Uh, not that I know from experience, but... Uh, well, anyway, gentlemen, this has been a real delight. And I was really excited to finally go through this... Uh, this information with you guys when it came out i was like oh that's going to be a podcast episode so mm-hmm. uh, hopefully it'll have some good effect in parish all right chris you want to answer a question that Dennis oh, yes, doesn't I know do. the answer to okay yeah. just like all of them <laughs> <laughs> all right so why go to the liturgical institute well if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church you won't find any place quite like this This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Okay, we have a question this week from Anna. Anna says... I forgot about that part of the question uh, section of this podcast. Uh, always Dennis says hi, and Chris ignores all the time. This group. Anna says, are the instructions in the germ, the general instruction of the Roman Missal, meant for all forms of the Roman rite, the ordinary, extraordinary, and ordinariate? And uh, she wants to know, basically, is that, the, is that the instruction for everything? Yeah. First of all, hi, Anna. Thanks for your question. Chris, say hi to Anna. Yes. Hello, Anna. <laughs> and I don't know if her last name is Diplosis or not, but that it would be, be awesome. And a D period plosis. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, I think uh, the uh, answer is no. That uh, in a Roman Missal, the front matter includes, at least let's, let's just take the, the current uh, uh, ordinary form Roman Missal. What belongs in that Missal between its covers uh, are the general, its general instruction, as well as its uh, norms for the calendar. Now, in our Missal, too, in the U.S., there's uh, norms for the distribution of Holy Communion. Uh, And really, strictly speaking, even the lectionary belongs in the Missal. So if you open up a volume of the lectionary, it will say, the Roman Missal, 
the lectionary. Now, lectionary readings aren't in uh, the Roman Missal on your altar in the ordinary form. The point is, is that the general instruction belongs to that particular Missal. So if you're going to use a different Missal, say from 1962, it would have... Uh, Dennis, it's not called a general instruction, but it's a... It's a rubrique generalis missalis romani. Okay, and it's... General it's, rubrics. Yeah, and so, so it's yeah a table or a listing of different rubrics for, for using that particular missile. And so it's, again, it's not quite a general instruction. It's certainly not called that, but it's giving the same sort of instructions on how to use that particular, particular missile. So that belongs to the 62 missile. And I would imagine, I've never seen one, but the Ordinariates Missile surely has the same sort of uh, uh, own kind of instruction manual, something called right. like a general instruction. So, If I remember right, though, the, the Ordinariate uses the Roman Missile with permitted adaptations because they're not considered another right. If I remember that correctly, probably someone's going to catch me on that. But, yeah, um, no, no, I remember no, we heard that from Bishop Lopes. Yeah, it's, it's tricky. It's not like there's three forms, you know, an extraordinary form, an ordinary form, and an ordinariate form. Yeah, it's a, it's a version of the uh, ordinary form of the missile. Right. But, and even yeah, in um, Summorum Pontificum, you know, which is the most appropriate that gave wider freedom to the extraordinary form, it was pretty clear. You use the rubrics from one missile and you don't mix the rights. And then it encourages them to mutually reinforce each other over time. I don't know that's going to happen if you can't mix the rights, but I guess they're thinking it's going to happen yeah. somehow. So anyway, you use the – but now, right, Chris, because the Ecclesia Dei, Commission, Ecclesia Dei Commission exists specifically to give permissions for different things, right? So they put yeah, new actually, feast days in and all that, but mm -hmm. it still doesn't change the rubrics, I think. Yeah, Actually, I think the Ecclesia Dei Commission no longer exists, right, uh, and all it's, of its work has been subsumed by the uh, – not the Congregation for Divine Worship and Discipline of the Sacraments, but the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, interestingly enough. But, but nonetheless, you, they still have right, these correct. permissions to do things that are not in the old rubrics. But they're still in the old rubrics, just with new insertions. And, but basically, here's the premise, right? The Roman Missal has two forms. You use the rubrics that go with yep. the form you're using. Yeah, that's it. That's it, Sorry. Jesse. Sorry, I had a hard time uh, unmuting myself there. So, all right, Anna, I hope that <laughs> answers your question. He has a question. hard time muting himself. I know. Yeah, I knew that was coming. I was, I was like, <laughs> this is a technical glitch, and no matter what I say or how do I uh, explain what's going on, it's going to be pie in my face, and then <laughs> it's, I'm going to be embarrassed no matter what. So, uh, all right, Anna, I hope that answers your question. I'm glad you can all hear me now. And uh, if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College. Now that's a podcast. <laughs>